Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 27th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Men's Development Network is today publishing the interim results of its Men's Attitudes Now or Man Survey. The survey hopes to establish the attitude Irish men have about themselves and their role in Irish society. It's a survey that's taken by men and questions men's perception of masculinity and gender, as well as their attitudes towards well-being, relationships, homophobia, pornography, gender-based violence and more. The Man Survey remains open to anyone who'd still like to participate in it, but as you've been hearing in the bulletins this morning, Morning, the interim results are reporting a truly startling attitudes towards porn. Over a fifth of all respondents under the age of 55 use pornography at least once a day. That number then rises to more than 70% of men who are under the age of 45 using pornography at least once a week. Let's speak to Sean Cook, who's the CEO of the Men's Development Network. Good morning, Sean. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this is the Good morning, Michael. How are you? first survey of its kind in this country. Are you as surprised as I am by the results? I think I am. Um, I, I wasn't expecting the prevalence. I think it's, uh, uh, it's quite high, certainly around the, uh, the daily usage. I think it's, re- it's quite high, uh, maybe a bit alarming in terms of that sense, in terms of uh, uh, the, the usage itself. And I suppose there's a bit more work to figure out in terms of the, ra- the rationale for, for the daily use, in terms of what, like, there's various different reasons why people use pornography. Uh, and uh, but it's bit, to get a sense around their the usage and why they're using it uh, will give you a real sense of what the impact will be on any one individual who's, okay. who's uh, daily using pornography. Yeah. All right, you lost me there for a minute, uh, Sean. Uh, what, what do you mean uh, several different reasons? Other than masturbation, what do people use pornography for? Well, 
a lot of people, some people use it, uh, and we found within the survey to kind of t- to gain insights into uh, a certain element of relationships. Whether that's a, the best place to go or not is another thing. But people say uh, they look about technique, they want to see about uh, positions and all sorts of various different things. So they do. Some people do learn certain amounts of stuff. But I think also another thing it does is that it reinforces whatever their own understanding around what relationships should be. Uh, uh, how they should behave, whatever it is, uh, and some of them are quite negative, you know. Mm. But uh, but uh, so there are various different reasons why they would check in uh, uh, on a daily basis or even on a weekly basis uh, why they're actually they're utilising porn. Okay, yeah. uh, well, <laughs> I don't know how often you'd need to check uh, for technique, and uh, I think uh, if the old myth of masturbating makes you blind, you'd see a lot of white sticks around the place. Sure. You, you talk about reflecting on uh, social conditioning uh, and yeah. if people are so wrapped up in pornography and obviously an awful lot of people are, they're watching it every day, a fifth of men and uh, 70% on a, a weekly basis. Uh, what is that doing to them? It's conditioning them undoubtedly. Uh, but what's the result of that? Well, I think the, the, the key results are the, uh, is, a, I suppose, is a very heightened expectation of what they think relationships should be or sexual relationships should be and very unrealistic expectations about it. Uh, in terms of, uh, it gives a very kind of, a, a, a situation where men feel that even their own body image or women's body image is a very, very heightened expectation of where it would be. So let's, let's be very clear, but this pornography is not real. Uh, it's something that, uh, you know, it doesn't give a real sense in terms of the, the, the full intimacy of a relationship and, uh, and what's required around that. And, mm. and when you do that, it kind of, what it does is it, for men, for men and, and women uh, watching porn, it desensitizes them to uh, uh, a whole range of various different feelings that they might have, and as well as that, it kind of it grows a certain amount of uh, a lack of empathy, you know, uh, certainly within men, and certainly the results of other uh, surveys would indicate that, you know, men sense their own their, their own acknowledgement, their own sensitivity, their own emotional and intelligence, uh, the lack of empathy towards women and mm. and, and uh, partners would actually diminish over a period of time. Right. Is that because men think it is real or they perceive it to be real? Uh, no, I don't think it's in that sense. I think it's more to do uh, with the fact that uh, I think that the use, the constant use is something that inerts them to it. Mm. Um, and, uh, are we, you know, are we talking about that, sex addiction? Uh, because yeah. I, I think that a, a lot of the men that we're talking about have partners and have sexual relationships and then are masturbating daily uh, and several times daily watching this sort of stuff. Uh, and any kind of addiction is bad for you. And uh, a sexual addiction like this, where you're watching something which isn't unreal, I, I take it can lead to people assuming that that's the way other p- people behave and they go home and they think, well, why doesn't she do that? Exactly. I think that's the, that's the, that, that all, those uh, unrealistic expectations of how people should behave are driven by the constant uses or the uses of it and seeing it and saying this is this is normalised behaviour when it, clearly it's not. It's not normal behaviour, and it's very interesting to see a lot of the, the stuff that happens within porn becoming mainstream sexual activity, like the thing around choking and all these type of stuff. So it's it's um, it, it does definitely kind of. Uh, uh, take away those very, very kind of soft edges in relation to kind of relationships and uh, it makes it very, very difficult for men to kind of differentiate between uh, between what actually they're seeing in pornography and what actually happens in real life. Okay. You know, but, mm. yeah, but I think the interesting thing in terms of the survey itself as well 
it does like there's quite the, the pornography is the one aspect of it but the other things around in terms of men's attitudes is, is very much around mm. to say seeking help even you know mm. um, and uh, like there's Interestingly enough, the survey asks questions of them individually, like, you know, uh, would you go seek help or is seeking help uh, a, a strong tradition of masculinity? Mm. You know, and as, a, as an individual, they'd answer quite highly in the positive and say, like, maybe 80% of them would say seeking help does not diminish your sense of, of your own masculinity. Yeah. But then when they say they'd ask about what's the attitude of society, they would say, well, actually, it, it lowers. They think that society would, would view men seeking uh, support or seeking help as weak, you know mm. what I mean. They would yeah. see it as that. So there's, there's very mm. interesting kind of results that are in the overall. Yeah, and it's quite a lengthy survey. I, I went yeah. through it yesterday, and it takes quite a while to get through it. Uh, but there are a lot of questions uh, along uh, those lines. Uh, what's your perception of crying in front of men yourself, mm. uh, and what would men think of you if you cried yeah. in front of them and that sort of thing? Uh, and mm. uh, I'm not sure. Does the same relate to pornography? Uh, do some men? Uh, because we're talking about a lot of people uh, and it's hard to break down uh, because I don't think you have that finding. Do some men think, well, you know, uh, I know this is unreal, I, I, I enjoy it, uh, uh, but it doesn't influence me in any way at all because I know some of the men that you spoke to said that it, it does and they expect yeah. their partner to perform in a way uh, that the women in the videos are, are, are performing. Uh, because there's also this other question, uh, if the men watching pornography realise that it is prostitution, by its definition, pornography comes from a, a Greek war, word which relates to prostitutes. Oh, that I didn't know, Michael. Uh, but I think I think clearly our sense in terms of pornography and as an organisation, in terms of, like, we, we certainly would like to uh, get to a situation where men... And women have a have a, a, an ability to, to 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 watch it and and, uh, and decrypt it rather than just absorb it as real. You know, I think we need to be kind of giving people visual literacy in relation to pornography. Pornography is out of it's out of the box now. You really can't put it back in. So really, what we have to do is is to is to educate young people and men and women and boys and girls around. Uh, the visual literacy around pornography mm. so that it doesn't impact them in the way that it can do in terms of eroding their uh, emotional empathy and their understanding or those really mad expectations that you might have uh, in terms of relationship and in terms of sexual acts that might happen and wherever it might be. So I think, uh, and I think the other thing about it is, is that we haven't really got delved into it in terms of the survey. It's probably the next bit that we have to do. Yeah. It's just around the ab- uh, objectification of women within pornography. Yeah, mm. and that's. And I think that's a critical thing that we need to look at. Is that like we're, it, it, it does kind of we're consuming this. You well, know, I was going to ask uh, you that, that in the context of uh, the sentencing of uh, the Gardaí yesterday. And we're going to have uh, some talk about that later in the program. But if men are looking at women in this way in these videos and objectifying women in that way in these videos, and they're masturbating daily or seven times daily, uh, watching something that uh, really is negative towards women, are they looking at women negatively? And does that include women other than their partners? partners, girlfriends or, or wives, and that when they're walking down the street, that it makes the world all the less safe for women? I, I think that's, uh, that's a, a kind of a reasonable assumption uh, that you could make from it, Michael, that certainly if people are, uh, if, uh, if men are looking at pornography in a particular way, as you, as you suggested there, it's definitely going to have a knock-on effect in terms of their attitudes towards women. Um, and, and that in itself then uh, creates those conditions and where violence can be perpetuated, you know. So I think, yes, it's the, it's the short answer to 
but it's with a lot of other caveats that mm. come with it. Of course. Um, yeah. mm. But I think it is. I think certainly uh, there's no doubt that when you any kind of uh, situation in which the objectification of women is, is to the forefront, mm. certainly is going to create those conditions or those thoughts or those social conditioning uh, within men and women themselves in terms of what the, uh, their role should be within uh, uh, relationships uh, as well. All know, right. So. Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, great to see what men are, are thinking and to get a, a, an understanding uh, mm. of what's in the minds of half the population or, or at least uh, a representative sample of uh, that. And uh, as I said earlier on, uh, there's many questions in your survey and it's not just to do with pornography and people might mm. uh, want to take that survey now uh, because it's going to remain open for some time and you're going to be presenting these interim uh, results uh, to a, an online support which is uh, to take place uh, tomorrow and we can give uh, people the details of how they can participate in the survey but there are other issues involved and what else can you tell us uh, about the interim results apart from pornography? Oh, well, apart, well, I think that, 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 that we talked earlier on there about the whole thing about men seeking support which is really kind of interesting in terms of how they do that and even then their attitudes to uh, homophobia as well so they're quite uh, uh, a kind of a critical kind of um, in, uh, understandings in terms of what's happening around those kind of stuff, you know, in terms of just not just the pornography, but as you say, around people and men seeking support or uh, they're involved they're around their own view of their own masculinity mm. and their own body image even, mm. uh, and what that's about and how that is, you know. So, uh, what for us is really interesting around the study is that it's allowing us to get information for us to be able to to develop programs and initiatives that can engage men and boys in the most appropriate way around these issues of their health or their well-being or gender equality or gender-based violence, you know. Mm. So it, it does give us that background and that evidence base to be able to go in and design really, really strong, appropriate programs that are what we would call the strengths-based approach to engaging with men uh, and not pointing a finger at them, really. Like, so the intention around the survey is not to say, oh, there's something wrong with men. It's more to say that, that there's, there's a lot of positive aspects that we need to work with men and we need to sit down with them and have these conversations and, uh, and, and, and raise their awareness and get them to reflect on their behaviours and maybe those traditional uh, norms and negative traditional norms that we need to kind of uh, usurp and, mm. and challenge uh, for us to live our most authentic lives. And that's the most, uh, that's, that's really the, kind of the kernel of our work within the Men's Development Network mm-hmm. and the reason behind the symposium and the actual uh, a survey itself. Mm. And uh, I suppose a lot of us were brought up uh, to believe that big boys don't cry right. uh, 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 and that real men are hard men. Uh, uh, and yeah. outside of uh, domestic violence and that kind of violence, you have been asking about being violent, being a hard man, if you like, uh, and if uh, you have to be violent to get respect. Uh, and yeah. you, like, like a lot of these questions, you got two different answers from the same people, if you like, how they saw yeah. it and what they believed other people thought. Yeah, and I think that's the really interesting thing about it. Like, just say, whether we're talking about homophobia or talking about violence and respect, when you ask them individually, they would be, they would be very clear saying, uh, no, you don't have to be violent to gain respect, you know, uh, or, or that I, I, my views in relation to homophobia, I strongly agree that you can have a friend who's gay or whatever it may be and that you should meet with them. Uh, all those things are very highly uh, positive, you know. But then when you ask them, then what do you think society views them as? They they drop quite significantly in terms of, to say, the percentages of it. Like, it's certainly around violence. Mm. It's fairly high, but then when it comes down to maybe 40%, say, that, oh, society 
uh, uh, views it very, very differently. And I suppose the key question around that is, is that is that really about how they view society or is it how they view the support that they have around them themselves? Is that the people that they live within their community, do they not reflect the individual's kind of perceptions of, of, of uh, or their values? You know, so there's a bit, it's really interesting that, that there's a, such a, a dichotomy and a, a change between the two and uh, it's something that we need to look at in terms of, yes, we need to work with the individuals, but also we need to work with society in la- at large in which to change attitudes or uh, to move with it. And I think the other critical thing that's come with the survey is that it certainly has showed, even, even though we've nothing to benchmark it against, Michael, mm-hmm. but it certainly has showed that there's been a significant shift in our society uh, in relation to men's attitudes towards themselves and their roles within the society. You know, that uh, it is easier for men to come forward and talk about their own vulnerabilities. Uh, it is easier, uh, and they're willing to do so, and there's been many, many champions come out and talk about their own uh, mental health and mm. uh, their own addictions and various different uh, challenges that people have. Yep. But I think that we're a little more receptive as, as a society to men coming forward like that. But mm. we still have massive challenges with it and, uh, yeah. and an invitation is out there for us all. Well, I, I, I think personally it's shocking that pornography is something that make, <laughs> makes men tick. But what's interesting generally is what makes any of us tick and that's what you're looking at and that just happens to be one of uh, the results. If people want to uh, attend your symposium or take part in the survey, your website is mensnetwork.ie and uh, that uh, symposium taking place tomorrow which is free of charge as well I think Sean. It is indeed. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. Sean Cook, CEO of Men's Development Network. I'm not sure what you make of that, but one in five of the men listening to us today has already or will at some stage today watch pornography and maybe do it again a second or third time or maybe spend the day doing it. And as we mentioned earlier on, that figure increases to 70% of men under the age of 45 who will watch pornography at least once a week. Now, if you're one of the men, uh, you're welcome to contact us. This is a a long shot, uh, but we would be interested in hearing from you uh, and you don't have to identify yourself. We certainly want to identify you. uh, If uh, you do want to make contact with us, uh, as Sean says, uh, they believe uh, that there should be a level of dialogue around the kitchen table in schools, youth and sports clubs and probably on radio stations as well uh, about this. And if you want to explain why you watch pornography uh, and uh, if it causes any problems for you or not, uh, you're more than welcome to do that because there's two quotes uh, that uh, the Men's Development Network have sent on to us uh, which I'll read to you. One from a man aged between 18 and 24 uh, who says he has difficulty telling if a partner enjoys sex as the reaction is not as exaggerated as a performer uh, and this has led to both guilt and insecurity for him. Uh, Another man who was aged between 25 and 34 said that pornography has led to him putting pressure on his partner to try new things in the bedroom. Uh, And uh, again, uh, that's just uh, one quote because you've the opportunity to put in quotes like that uh, in uh, the middle of uh, the survey if you do want to participate in it uh, or if you want to uh, make comment like that with us in the programme. Of course, we'd welcome your comment uh, or if there's uh, something else for that matter that you'd prefer to speak to, you're welcome to get in touch with us today as always. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, some of uh, the recent problems at uh, Dublin Airport were thrashed out at uh, the Oireachtas Transport Committee yesterday. Darren O'Rourke is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport and a TD for me, the and he, he joins us now. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. I suppose uh, the 4,000 bags uh, that uh, have been lost and are now being stored in the airport uh, was one of uh, the more shocking aspects of what you heard. 4,200 mislaid or missing bags for that matter. Yes, Michael, and, and um, I, I think it's unfortunately safe to say that the, the problems are ongoing and look like they're set to, to continue um, in the weeks ahead, um, uh, probably for the course of the summer, which is which is hugely frustrating for people. Um, we did hear from from DAA, from Aer Lingus, from Sky Handling Partners, and from Swissport. And, and Sky Handling Partner and Swissport uh, handle uh, our luggage handlers, baggage handlers, and. And Erling, interestingly, Erlingus handle their own, and Ryanair handle their own. So they they handle a very significant amount themselves. So the the actual handling partners only carry about ten percent of the work themselves. But what we what they painted a picture of was, as you said, over four thousand bags. Um, uh, lost, uh, 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 you know, baggage mountains. Uh, some of it landside, some of it airside, and and inaccessible. Um, it is uh, uh, increasing in some quarters on a daily basis. Uh, they're they're making a dent in this uh, in other quarters day by day. Um, so 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 to be honest, a picture of of chaos of lots of different moving parts uh, of a lack of a central point for people to contact, a lack of clarity and clear information for people in terms of the process and what sort of chronology is is, is happening. Um, and I think it is, you know, incredibly frustrating. And there isn't a, a public representative or, or radio show, I'm, I'm sure, across the country that hasn't heard the really, you know, it's not fl- flippant or easy stuff, uh, really. You know, I, I, I'm dealing with people who've lost medicines, lost vital equipment, lost, you know, we, we've heard the case of, of people losing you know, uh, equipment for work, whether that be musical instruments. We've heard, you know, the really distressing case of, of you know, a family member's ashes being lost. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it is chaos, and, and, and at the root of it is, um, you know, aviation trying to, you know, a rapid recover, recovery in aviation that the industry as a whole was not prepared for. Mm, and it is the industry as a whole, isn't it, worldwide? It is, Michael, yeah. and, and 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 some some of some of what is precipitating at at, at Dublin Airport and relating to uh, uh, these baggage delays. Um, is actually caused by problems not at Dublin Airport but at Shipall, at Heathrow, at Toronto, at major international hubs. So Aer Lingus have indicated, um, and, and you know it's impossible to verify, and they might say it, but they would say uh, uh, the problems at their end are not of their own making, but uh, the vast majority of them 
are related to connecting flights and Dublin Airport is the last point on the on the 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 the, the connection if you like and what's happening is in some instances you have planes leaving uh, airport A getting to, to, to Dublin Airport and they have no baggage on board um, uh, because right. of the because of the delays at, at, at Airport A My and what God. happens is right. pe- people um, you know arrive mm-hmm. without their baggage and their baggage follows after uh, if, if, if at all uh, and in fairness uh, that's not uh, Dublin Airport's fault obviously uh, but uh, it's not the only problem uh, that people have faced coming through the airport <laughs> getting through the airport as we know has been almost impossible for some people uh, and 700 people I, I think it is have made complaints about the 29th of May when 1400 people or thereabouts uh, missed flights uh, because of uh, the delays getting through security. They told you yesterday they've already paid out hundreds of thousands in compensation and that bill could reach a million euro. Exactly. Yeah, that's that. That's the so, so they say. Seventy-five percent of 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 claims are being processed. I know, uh, and I specifically raised a number of cases that that uh, were, were were still not being dealt with. But yeah, they've they've earmarked in the region of one million euros uh, by way of compensation for for people that missed their their flights. And and I queried the the the, the number in terms of fourteen hundred, but they do estimate it will be in the region of of that fourteen hundred. Hundred figure um, because some of the claims um, would re- relate to multiple passengers, for example. So they do think that the fourteen hundred figure is is uh, is right in terms of the amount of passengers that that, that missed their flights and, and that are eligible for 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 for, for compensation. Um, so it's a, a very significant. Mm. Um, and they are doing uh, significantly better now, aren't they? I mean, the delays are, are there. There aren't delays uh, really to talk of, uh, but they are concerned about people. Uh, arriving too early for their flights. Yeah, and, and and I think Aer Lingus were very clear in relation to that. They said the policy is is actually causing problems. Um, now now Aer Lingus could facilitate that uh, by 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 opening their check-ins earlier, but but I think the point is is a reasonable one that 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 deserves uh, consideration. They're saying people are arriving, you know, far earlier than 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 indicated or or advised, and that's obviously having a knock-on effect in terms of of people who are arriving on time as advised. Uh, you know, there's 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 more people there, mm. and 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 that has a so so Aer Lingus had a, you know advised that that policy of DAAs should be lifted, and DAA in fairness indicated that it's something they're keeping under review, and I would expect that they may move on that in the near future as as they, they've um, you know improved the security, the throughput, the ch- the, the, the the check-in piece, and also I think. What you have, you know, the last time I think we spoke in relation to this was uh, with a particular focus in relation to the the, the, the security uh, piece and the, the, the security screening. The issues there seem to be, be resolved to a large extent, but, you know, there are real concerns in terms of cleanliness. and you know, so mm-hmm. there, there are other areas that, that have, have really fallen um, and, and uh, DAA indicated that... Probably because yeah, those cleaners are working in security. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, no, yeah. and they also made the point. They also made the point related to the earlier point that there are more people in the airport at times where in the past that there wouldn't have been people there, and that's when the cleaning would have been done. So, so they're they're saying that they, you know, 
because the improvements in security means they can redeploy staff. That um, you know the security, the, the cleaning regime is is happening on a, a more thorough basis now. Probably not where it where we would expect it or want it to be as as, as passengers, but but uh, it, it is improving and they expect it to consider considerably improve in the time ahead. I don't think the same can be said, unfortunately, for the chaos in terms of baggage handling. They did point to a number of measures that they they think, you know, from a from a bureaucratic level in terms of licences and uh, uh, guard clearance for workers, similar to the the arguments that were made in relation to hiring security staff. That if 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 you know if if that process could be fast tracked that it would it would give them extra capacity and allow them to do their their work more efficiently but I, but the, the point we really emphasize and think across the committee michael mm-hmm. was that communication needs to be absolutely clear with people. There's huge frustration with people. They, they, they engage online um, and are frustrated there and then, you know, present at the airport or try to, to pursue it uh, uh, in okay. other ways yeah. and are completely frustrated by those processes. All right. Uh, while you're with us, I want to return to the subject we were talking about the last time, which is uh, the emergency department in Our Ladies in uh, Navan. Since then, we went around the houses trying to get more information. We uh, eventually were told that the HSE has established a working group which was to set about its task which was to review the whole situation this week Uh, but we found it impossible to find out any more information about that since then. Uh, Do you know anything about this review? I don't, Michael. Uh, be not, uh, be, to be perfectly honest with you, um, as, as far as I can see, LMFM have uh, as much information as anybody and, and more than the vast uh, majority of people. I, I find that frustrating. Um, I spoke at the Save Navin Hospital uh, campaign meeting, the big public meeting in, in Navin, um, I had heard rumours at that stage that government would come with a proposal for a review. I urged the room to be uh, cautious in relation to that. I, you know, I, I would have my suspicions. Um, I, like I, I think we need to engage when all of these things are an open mind, but. I, you know, anytime I hear of a review, I, I think, you know, is this a case that it's a fudge? Is it kicking the thing down the road? What are the terms of reference? What exactly, you know, who's on the panel? Uh, what, what's the, what are the details of the review? Is the information been made available? Have they engaged in terms of the, the terms of reference of the review? And I, I think, you know, I think it's quite clear that there is a, a lack of information in relation to what the, what the, what the, what's, what's actually happening here. And I would, I would question that. And I think the, the really important thing around any review is that it looks uh, in the first instance, of at what it would take to protect and enhance services at Navin Hospital and to address the safety concerns there, mm, okay. rather, that, rather than this mm. being a, a yep. fait accompli and um, all, almost, you know, cover for, for doing what, what was intended in the first place. And, yep. and, and well, I think from the language from the HSE, I would be suspicious that that's the case. They haven't been able to give us a, a, any meat on the bones. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to do that in, in uh, the coming days. Um, um, just before you go, uh, can I ask you about the Irish Examiner today? I'm sure you've seen Elaine Lachlan's uh, piece in it under the headline, 
How can Sinn Féin continue to duck the world's greatest challenge? There's a photograph of you uh, there because uh, you're the party's spokesperson on climate change. Uh, And she says that considering Sinn Féin hasn't published a a policy document on climate since November 2019, it shouldn't be surprising that the party is now asking to borrow the government's homework, which is why you're saying you can't say whether it's 22 or or, or 30 percent that should be cut in emissions. Uh, But she, Elaine Lockler, that is, in her article makes the point that people before profit can do it without seeing the government's homework uh, and so can the social democrats yes yeah, so, so i think that's a, a deeply unfair piece michael um so so, so uh, whoever wants can can pick a figure out of the air and and hope for the best um and I think that's what the Social Democrats and People for Profit have done, because I haven't heard them in any way explain how we would actually achieve a 30% reduction in in agricultural emissions. The suggestion that, that Sinn Féin hasn't, hasn't policy, we've submitted substantial amendments to the Climate Bill, we've published a Green Hydrogen Strategy Bill. Yes, You're not ducking the world's greatest challenge. Yesterday we were on the plinth publishing further legislation. We've critiqued the the government's response and and presented our alternatives. We absolutely are not. This is a very serious process. I, I think it's interesting actually that another newspaper published a report on the ongoing negotiations and said that the government themselves with the resources of the department need additional information to decide how the, the cuts in, the necessary cuts in, in every sector, but in agriculture in, partic- in particular, could actually be achieved. Now, we've been excluded from that process. Yeah. We've been denied the information. We've sought the information. Mm. I don't know that anybody else... But do you accept that if it's 22%, let's say, instead of 30%, well, then the 8% that is not cut in agriculture will have to be passed on to transport or industry. Oh, uh, that, that, that's the, that's, uh, that's the, the, yeah, that's exactly the arithmetic. That's, that's the, the cuts have to be made in terms of the, the emissions reductions. But, but to bear in mind, Michael, like the government ha- has been quite successful. I know they're having real difficulty at, at this stage in terms mm-hmm. of setting targets. We've set targets in the past. The science dictates what the targets need to be, 51% by 2030. Uh, where the cuts come is a separate matter, and that's been discussed now. But every single target they've met, uh, they, they've, they've they've raised, they've failed to meet it. Why have they failed to to meet it? Because their approach to climate is divisive. It's set up as rural versus urban. It's set up uh, uh, farming versus climate. There is huge opportunity in climate change in terms of investing in renewable energy, mm. uh, massive export, jobs for, for, for rural communities, okay. Darren, uh, warm, uh, warmer uh, homes, uh, uh, lots of opportunities. I have to leave it there, but thank you. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I am over time. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us, as always, on the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD, for Mead East, and his party's uh, spokesperson uh, on uh, transport and climate change. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you're caught speeding on the roads, uh, the fine will increase from 80 to 160 euro. If uh, you're found using your phone when you're driving or if you're not wearing uh, your seatbelt, that fine will double from 60 to 120 euro. There'll be other increases as well. Let's speak to Paddy Cummins, who's Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Good morning to you, Paddy. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Will uh, this... Uh, increase in what you pay uh, actually deter people from uh, committing uh, these motoring offences or do the points need to increase in line with those increase in the fines? 
Well, we certainly hope so. I mean, it takes a little bit longer in legislation to make amendments to penalty points. So I think this is certainly a, a reaction to what has been a pretty poor number of weeks on the roads, a number of, of deaths. I mean, we're 42% up on last year in terms of, of road fatalities. And, and I think, you know, anyone, certainly, there was, you know, over the last few weeks, there's been a really dramatic increase and certainly locally as well there has been too so I think anything that can that can really make people pay attention to what's happening um, will will be a good measure but I think points might be another issue that comes later on. Yeah well 160 euro might make you think some people won't think about that at, at all uh, and I suppose that's the argument with points isn't it because it gives you the ability to put people off the road. Yeah I mean I, I mean the speeding is one thing but you know when you look at some of the other causes. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, I can't imagine people now not wearing seatbelts, but obviously it still happens. But I think, I think you know, one of the difficulties is, that, right, like our, our roads are safer in terms of, you know, the surfaces that we drive on are better and our cars are safer, but I think we're more distracted than we are were ever before. And I think the mobile phone use is a, a, is a big issue because people are doing all sorts of things on their phone, be it, you know, changing their music, in putting up pictures on Instagram, you know, we've seen people filming themselves making videos while they're driving. So, you know, things like that. Certainly, the mobile phone use is a big issue that hasn't really been resolved yet. Mm, traditionally, long weekends are bad weekends on Irish roads. The Gardaí say they'll be out in force this weekend. Do you believe them? Yeah, we do. I mean, I mean, I think that I think that there is going to be a concerted effort, especially this weekend, and especially at weekends in general, because we know anecdotally that the weekends are the most dangerous times. Um, but bank holidays as well have been very poor, and I think there is a real effort, given the amount of deaths in the last few days, that um, that there there will be a huge effort. So I think most of your listeners can expect to see a fairly high level of visibility in the roads. Very good. Uh, food for thought for all of our listeners. Paddy, I have to leave it there. We've run over time on other issues, but thank you indeed for joining us. Paddy Cummins is Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on LMFM. Now, thanks uh, to Jimmy, who has WhatsApped us uh, this morning about uh, the sentence of uh, that guard yesterday. He says three and a half years in any other jurisdiction, he'd uh, have got a much more appropriate sentence. In, in the UK, it would have been at least 10 years. The States, he'd have got life. Uh, Jimmy asks, is it because he was a guard? He says he was out last night and it was the main topic of conversation. Everybody talked about how lenient the sentence was. This, uh, of course is uh, the sentencing of uh, Paul Moody, 42 years of age, a serving Garda who carried out a four-year campaign of harassment, threats, assaults and coercive control of his terminally ill partner. Uh, He was jailed for three years and three months in Dublin Circuit Criminal Court yesterday. His victim... Uh, described him as a monster, somebody who was not just fighting cancer. She says, I was up against a monster who would take away any chance I had of surviving. Uh, Judge Martin Nolan said that Moody physically assaulted the woman in the most vicious way, harassed her, abused her and made her life hell. Uh, in her victim impact statement, uh, the woman at uh, the centre of uh, this case said uh, that when she first met him initially, there was a, a normal relationship with a, a charming and funny man uh, and he slowly but surely broke her down. She said she couldn't battle cancer and a war with him. I always thought if I could get better, I could get away from him. I believed he was going to kill me so many times. I can feel the weight of him on my body, choking me, ripping out my hair from the roots. I was afraid to show vulnerability as that was when he attacked me the most. 
she went on to say that he was aware of how weak and sick she was from chemo and described him stealing her cancer medication knowing that she couldn't afford to replace it. She described one occasion of driving to a hospital with Moody in the passenger seat and he became verbally abusive and pulled over to let him get out and then he took her hospital bag with him. Later he came to the hospital. He told her that the only reason he was there was so he could watch her bleed to death. Moody began to record her and she asked that he be removed from the hospital. She says that was the last straw. That was the day that broke me. Uh, She said she felt like Moody knew what was going on in her mind because he had access to her phone. I felt like my mind was broken glass. I didn't know what was right or wrong anymore because he was breaking my mind, the woman said. Uh, And she said she can no longer walk past a Garda station without feeling physically sick and described how the process to get justice has taken its toll. My time is very precious. as I don't know how much time I have left, the woman said before adding that the mental abuse she suffered was worse than the violence. He was beyond evil with his words. I thought having cancer was the worst thing that ever happened to me, but I believe he is worse than any cancer. I I couldn't endure any more pain and torture from this man, the woman said before she added that she had considered taking her own life. He's robbed me of so much that I cannot get back. I was ashamed of what I was put up with. What I, what I put up with from him. The shame and judgment from other people allows the abuser to get away with so much, she said. Women are afraid to tell the truth. I have survived him with cancer, so I want others to know they can too. Uh, the woman concluded her statement by encouraging other people in a similar position to come forward. Let's speak now to Anne Larkin, who's the services manager with Women's Aid Dundalk. A very good morning to you, Anne, and thank you indeed for joining us, not just to talk about this horrific experience that this woman endured, but also, uh, I think, to congratulate her on uh, the example that she is giving to other women who are in this position. Absolutely, Michael, and thanks very much for the opportunity this morning. Yeah, um, first and foremost, this woman absolutely needs to be commended for the courage and bravery she showed and for her message to the many women out there this morning who will be, in, if not the same, in very similar circumstances, um, that there is a way out. People will believe that's one of the biggest uh, weapons that an abuser has, that he will convince the woman that nobody will believe her. And if he has standing in the community, you can fully understand why the woman would believe what he's saying. Mm. A member of the Guardi, of course, he had standing yeah. in the community. What do you think of Jimmy's comment about the sentence? Uh, was yeah, it an I, appropriate sentence? I can appreciate that, but I would have to say, Michael, like this legislation is new. It was only it's the 2018 Domestic Violence Act. The crime of coercive control has only been in existence since then, the 1st of January 2019. So it's new legislation. And there's a little bit of me wondering, like when the legislation was drafted, did those think that they would have such horrendous circumstances being brought before them? I think the legislation will evolve as time goes on, as we've seen. I see the judge was inclined to go for the, the full sentence, but you know, the, the guilty plea in that had to be considered. But yeah, I think we will see the legislation evolve um, in the coming years. But I would say, considering it's brand new, um, up until 2019, this case wouldn't even have been brought. Yeah, 
Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, many cases uh, should have been brought over the years uh, that weren't brought uh, and that uh, is uh, where we should uh, find some solace in that sentence even if people believe uh, that he should spend more time in prison because of uh, his terrible wrongdoing. Uh, there is the other issue then of his pension and I suppose this would uh, apply in any circumstance where a guard uh, is found guilty of a, a crime or anything else for that matter they're entitled to their pension have you any thoughts on this given the um the abuse he meted out to this woman yeah my thought would be um personally and this is a personal opinion and um, i don't believe he should have been allowed to resign i believe if there was um such a mechanism as a dishonorable discharge that's what should have been the case that's my own opinion. Okay. Uh, and that would mean that he wouldn't be entitled to a pension. I take it uh, as well as anything else. Uh, he'll be out uh, in far less than the three years, yeah. three months uh, that he's been sentenced to. Yeah. But it does send a message. And the very fact that this woman was able to go to court, that the Garda, Shia Khanna, did prosecute the case, did support. And like I would be very encouraged by the detective's comments yesterday. Um in speaking out for other women, encouraging them to come forward and assuring them that their individual case would be handled by Angada Shiakana as the women see fit. Mm. You know, it's given some measure of control and assurance back to the women who have been subjected to such horrendous abuse. Yeah. Uh, by, uh, uh, it, uh, was, it was continuous. Um, yeah. I'm sure everybody listening to us knows what an Encyclopedia Britannica looks like. Yeah. Uh, there were 33,000 pages of information uh, which related to electronic data, communication, text message and all that. Uh, and uh, if you printed off the 33,000 pages, it, it equated to two volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica, an incredible uh, uh, amount of abuse for anybody to engage yeah. themselves in. In a short space of time, yeah. Michael, like that happened in a short space of time. Um, and there are women out there who have had a lifetime of this. Mm. Um, and again, can you imagine the strength it takes for someone to be resilient enough to be able to survive this, to be able just to function? Um, I do think that the detail of this case might help society in general um, to understand the breadth of what coercive control is and how it is very much the calculated. This call I is on hold. I thought the line had uh, dropped out on us there. Uh, apologies for that. Uh, we'll try to get Anne back on the line. Uh, control is. Oh, Anne, I'm, I, we lost you there for a minute. Uh, you went on hold. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Michael. No, 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 that's okay. Um, um, but uh, you were saying uh, that it gives an indication of, of um, how damaging coercive control can be. Um, yeah. Reading through all of this, um, and it's a conversation I had with the Minister for Justice uh, about um, these type of crimes, whether it's just physical violence or uh, it's psychological violence, uh, it all ends up to abuse, domestic abuse, whatever words you want to put on a coercive control. Is it not madness? Uh, sh should somebody like this not be in the central mental hospital? But I, I, can't go, I, I can't get into the mind of the abuser, but the research, and there's been a lot of work done over the years, um, and it, it's 
it's a matter of choice. What you're seeing is that men are choosing the behaviours. Um, that's why the coercive control is such an important uh, definition of it. Mm. The man chooses his behaviour. There's nobody responsible for it but himself. And it is around the whole power and control of another human being in their orbit. Um, and yeah, like that's, you know, this man, he's 20 years in the guards and nothing, nothing indicated that there was this side of his personality. Mm. So he's able to function, to conduct himself, to carry out his profession and no indication whatsoever of how he relates to this particular woman. So... Yeah, and I mean, this seemed to take on uh, every form. Uh, there certainly was uh, that psychological uh, abuse, but there was a lot of physical violence. Uh, there was one report of uh, an incident which resulted in this woman ha- having a footprint mark on her back. Uh, that was because uh, she wouldn't let him into the shower with her. Uh, so he dragged her out of the shower. He punched her. He kicked her. Uh, she ran down the stairs uh, trying to get dressed and he continued to kick her. Uh, and that was the upshot of that only for her to, fi- to, to to get a text message him off uh, the next day uh, threatening to put a, a knife into her uh, and then uh, assaulting her again soon after up against the wall choking her and pulling out some of her hair. I mean this is really really um, aggressive, violent uh, animalistic type uh, of stuff. Uh, it's inhumane that people act like that towards each other. I agree Michael totally and like this woman had no escape this all happened within confines of her own home where she's supposed to be safe with someone who at the initial stages from what I'm reading of that relationship that there was, you know, mm. it was charming and no funny. indication, charming yeah. and funny. Mm. But men who abuse like this, they groom the women. They are everything that they believe the woman wants them to be. Mm. But they don't see the real person until after the control has been established. Mm. A bully and a, a disturbed man, the judge described him as. Uh, I guess that's uh, one way of putting it. Uh, might mm. be an understatement. Yeah. Uh, he, he put, uh, or he threatened to put naked photographs of her on the internet, uh, and uh, he texted her one day saying she he hoped she was going to be raped. And that's, that's the extent, like, that's the thing, that's the really hard part for society and for, you know, yeah. ordinary human beings to comprehend. Mm. And that's what the, you know, the, the walk around coercive control and the benefit that, that that title is, it's actually showing that pattern of behaviour, that deliberate pattern of behaviour yeah. that men are uh, engaging in. And, you know, when when we understand just how, you know, broad, how dangerous that is. Like some of the work that we've done, if you look at the domestic homicide reviews in England, in, or sorry, in the UK in 2011, mm. what that showed up was that in more than half of the, sorry, I can't remember the figures offhand, but in all the cases they reviewed, physical violence um it might have gotten more attention because the perceived risk was higher because it was physical violence. But in actual fact, there were more women killed where there had been that obsession and control and what we now know of as coercive control. So that whole controlling element, instead of looking at the physical, what you know, the report came in saying was they should have been looking at the element of control 
that had been enforced around that woman, the the levels of isolation, all of that, because that all built a picture Mm. and a much higher risk to the woman Mm. than the physical violence was. And that's the thing, coercive control, it may or may not include physical and sexual violence, Mm. but it's the control part, you know, the, the breaking down of an individual, you know, taking away her complete identity as a person in her own right. Okay, well, I'm not sure about numbers, uh, and I kind of I'm not asking for specific numbers, but I'm very disturbed by what you said at at the beginning of the conversation that there's lots of women listening to us this morning who are in this particular situation because I find that very difficult to believe because I feel very, very far removed from it. When I read this sort of stuff, uh, I I think uh, it's out of some horror novel or something like that. It, it, It just can't happen in real people's lives. Normal people don't behave like this, which is why I was saying uh, that he should be in the central mental hospital or, 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 or dealt with, uh, put in the zoo or something. Uh, too good, The zoo would be too good for somebody who acts like this towards another human yeah. being. Uh, and I, I, I'd have thought that this was extremely rare because most yeah. of us don't encounter this sort of behaviour. But are, are you telling us that there are women listening to us this morning, that there's many women listening to us this morning who will be able to identify with what this woman went through? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say, like, I, I can't give you the number off the top of my head, but this is not the first case of coercive control that has been successfully prosecuted. And we are going to see more. But this is what women have lived with all down through the years. This is the nature and extent, not in all cases, but in many. And some women may have experienced, you know, some pieces of what this lady has experienced. But no, this is very rampant in our society. And, you know, I can understand you've been taken aback, Michael, by this, but can I can I imagine what this man's colleagues felt like when all this came to light? This is a man who I assume would have been, you know, carrying on a normal life to all intents and purposes. And, like, that's the thing about coercive control. It doesn't discriminate in terms of its victims. You know, any woman, no matter what our standing in society or socioeconomic background, can be a victim of domestic abuse and coercive control. But it goes for perpetrators as well. Mm. Men who perpetrate this abuse come from all walks of life. You know, so it's, it is very difficult, as I say, for ordinary men and women to comprehend the extent of violence abuse that a man can inflict on a woman purely to have control over her. It's very, very difficult, but there yeah. is help, uh, and you're uh, is, and I would say, Michael, that as harrowing as these cases are when they come into the public eye, it is helping to show women that, you know, they can come through, they will be believed. Mm. Um, and it's also like, you know, there's a lot of work going on now with the third national strategy on domestic violence. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, there is a bigger picture here that we are seeing progress. An awful lot more work to be done and an awful lot more. Uh, change at societal level. Um, but at yeah. the end of the day, if, if nothing else comes out of this, is that woman, you know, that woman, God, she's done an amazing job yeah. of seeing this through and uh, encouraging other women to come forward. And you're here uh, to help and to offer that help. And if people uh, want to come forward, if people want some sort of assistance, uh, some sort of help, uh, they can contact you. They can talk, contact Dundalk Women's Aid uh, on 042 933 That's 042 933 
Uh, and of course, uh, womensaid.net is uh, the website, and they'll find you on Facebook yeah. and other social media sites and all of that. As and well, just then. to say, Michael, before I go, there are 39 domestic violence services around the country, around the island of Ireland. So there's help across the country because this is not confined to any particular area or anything else. So there is help out there. Um, and hopefully we'll see women step forward and be able to begin that journey. I hope so. No, no, n- nobody should endure a life like that. No. And thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, and uh, for that uh, advice as well for people. Anne Larkin, Services Manager with Women's Aid Dundalk. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, Social Justice Ireland is reiterating its call that social welfare rates must increase by €20 in uh, the budget, which is uh, to be held a couple of weeks earlier than usual in September of this year. Let's speak uh, to Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. And very good morning to you, Sean. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. If you were to increase welfare across the board by €20, the government is estimating that would cost €1.5 billion euro uh, that seems like a, an awful lot of money yes but uh, more than half of it would go to pensions uh, so there would be pension increases um, uh, the bottom line is that these are the group of people identified by, by the central bank uh, by the ESRI and by many others in research including ourselves that these are the group who are suffering most as a result of the change in cost of living so the cost of living issue is very, very important. It has, there is a situation where, where the cost of living is, 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 is high and growing, and that if the, if with the welfare rate isn't €20 Euro a week higher in 2023, it will mean that those who are on the core welfare rates will actually be worse off in 2023 than in 2022. Mm. And with all due respects, at the end of the day, that would be a failure of budgetary policy, as far as I'm concerned, because at the end of the day, what we should be doing is putting in place a budget uh, that protected the most vulnerable and that used the resources that were available to protect the most po- uh, the most vulnerable. Some people have no capacity to deal with the... They, they have no spare cash to yeah. deal uh, with the rising cost of living. Others have a lot of money. Uh, I think it's wrong that government is thinking in terms of giving quite a substantial amount of money to people who are in the better half the better off half of the of the of the income distribution and prepare and, and preparing to see the poorest in society see their meagre income fall in value again mm. uh, as it has done this well, year, every, every, year everybody's income is falling in value that is true uh, that, that is true and that's just the reality of inflation i suppose uh, but when uh, you're on lower incomes uh, well then falls on that scale mean things become unaffordable. But do we have the one and a half billion necessary to make that kind of an increase? Easily is the answer. Easily. We have more than enough to be able to pay for the for the for the increase in in, in welfare. The Government itself is estimating that they'll have a, somewhere in the region of four billion uh, available in the budget uh, for distribution, new money for distribution. My own view is that it'll be a bit higher than that on budget day itself, uh, when they see 
when they see the numbers closer, you know, a few mm-hmm. more one months towards the end of the year, and that we will in fact have more than four billion available on budget day. So putting one and a half billion of that into uh, raising the lowest well uh, the, the core welfare rates uh, by twenty euro a week is what government should actually do. I'm very concerned that some of the kite flying that's going on by government ministers, and today uh, is the is the, the government is holding its pre-budget forum on social welfare out in Farmley and the Minister for Social Protection is there, Heather Humphreys and I, in the last few weeks herself and the, and the, um, the Taunish have been flying different kites about how they're going to deal with this uh, situation but uh, like Part of it is giving uh, money, uh, a little bit more money to people when they become unemployed in the beginning, but not to actually uh, deal with the issue of the core rates reaching the uh, the, 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 the requirement level to, to ensure that they are their value is maintained. For me, uh, the kind the, the initiatives that they should take should first of all be mm. guided by protecting the poorest, and that means in effect making sure that twenty euro a week goes into the pocket of those who are depending on core on the core welfare rates, mm. and that will not give them any huge amount of anything. Again, it'll simply allow them uh, to to be able to make a choice and then to sort of be able to have both food and fuel and not have to ch- to choose between the two, which is what they're facing at the moment. Okay, and I take it that that in itself would cost them one and a half billion, but you're, I think, saying go beyond that uh, because you're saying extend the fuel allowance, uh, improve uh, the carers grant, uh, the domiciliary care allowance, uh, equalise the rates for people who are unemployed and are under the age of 25, bring them up to full welfare rates and indeed an extra 20 euro to pay people who have a disability for the cost of disability. That's right, and uh, uh, like the, that would be uh, the sort of when you look at the, when you put it all together, uh, you're in a situation where the 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 the, uh, the poll package is close to two billion. But the the, the bottom line in that is that there's uh, it, it, it for people to survive. Basically, we have to face up to the fact that we have developed a society. Uh, where this is the kind of approach that we have decided to take to if we're going to ensure that everybody has sufficient to live life with dignity and um, at least have the basics uh, to, to that are required uh, in that mm. context. And if that's how we have decided we want to organise it, then we have to pay for it. Okay. You know, on the other side, though, there's other things we're doing as well, Justin, to be aware that, uh, like we are, for example, doing quite a, 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 making strong recommendations on things uh, like the uh, childcare, for example, and housing, and uh, in the whole just transition issue, and the health, and uh, rural and uh, regional and community uh, development, those kinds of things. So, in that sense, uh, and of course, education and children generally. And uh, we have produced fully costed uh, proposals, and we've shown how they can be, how the proposals can be actually paid for, because we've looked at taxation and revenue raising as well and we're not talking about raising income tax mm. uh, but we're talking about a fairer tax take um, being paid by across the board particularly on the corporate side okay. uh, so mm. that we get a balanced picture at the end of the day at the bo- at the end of the day we should have a situation where Ireland's poorest 
are not going to be left further behind than they have been uh, in, in recent years uh, by the budgets that this government has produced and the predecessor government as well. Okay, much more talk about this obviously in the coming weeks. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment though. Thanks as always for joining us today. Sean Healy, Director of Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. I'll just read you part of an open letter that has been written to the Minister for the Environment, Damon Ryan. It says, in striving to play our part in addressing the challenge posed by climate change, it is vital that you as Minister and the Government apply equal measures to all sectors of the economy. In the last number of weeks, you have clearly failed to do this and instead of becoming a unifying force, you have become a divisive one. Farmers are very angry on this issue, but also informed, not just with regard to what is happening in Ireland, but further afield, unless you want a situation like there is in the Netherlands, I would advise you to pull back and ensure your government commences a constructive engagement with the farming community and their representatives. This letter is signed by Vincent Roddy, who's the INHFA National President, and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Vincent, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. You certainly put it up to the minister in your letter, uh, if uh, that's uh, one way of putting it. Uh, were you a little bit threatening in what you had to say to Eamon Ryan? Uh, well, good morning, Michael, and it's good to be on the show. Um, I, I don't know if we're threatening. I, I think what we're trying to do in that letter um, is is reflect the mood that is there in the farming community. And, and it's the mood that we're hearing coming into our office. Uh, is, there is, Michael, a huge level of frustration. Um, obviously anger and and look we don't want to see and I don't think it's in anyone's interest to see what is happening in Holland but we can't ignore it um, I mean the shelves are empty uh, and, and farmers are, are up in arms there and have been for the last month or so uh, and we don't need to get to a situation like that in Ireland and I think it's important maybe to to point that out to the Minister and that's what we're trying to do with that mm, Well it sounds like a, a threat or a thinly veiled threat as uh, the case may be uh, obviously uh, the government is grappling with the situation and is divided on whether it should be a cut of of twenty two or thirty uh, percent. Why not thirty percent? Thirty percent will 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 wreck farming. Um, that's that's the reality. I mean, we're, we're looking, and not just. I think it's important that that we understand. Um, it, it'll be devastating, not just for farming, but for, for the wider rural economy. Will and, 22% uh, not wreck the planet? Well, 22% is a massive challenge as well. Mm. Um, there, there's no doubt about that. And, and I mean, we would like to see a longer lead-in uh, on that. And I think one of the issues we'd have had, Michael, and, and look, not just us, I, I think all the other farming organisations w- would have had this and farmers in general, has been that the lack of consultation. Like last October, I think it was, the sector targets were announced and they were told that this this is how we're going to do it, but but you know, you know we're, we've been told twenty two to thirty percent. But I think it's important to to reflect on something else here, uh, and something maybe people don't fully understand. Even farmers uh, aren't fully understanding this. That that's that's for 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 agricultural output. Uh, so that's one sector. But also we we have we have uh, proposals around uh, land use policy, um, and that's a different sector. So so even for farmers, if if you have if you have suckler cows and you're saying, well look. Uh, you know, I might be able to offset some of that uh, through, through, through putting in more trees or hedge or, or something like that, then that option is not available to farmers. Mm. 
uh, and that's a massive challenge uh, and that's a massive problem and and, and well, well you have to reduce fertilizer and you have to reduce cattle numbers so you have to re- reduce the size of the herd uh, because otherwise we're looking at, at oblivion and I think everybody has known this for decades in fact and this has to be done this 30% if you like uh, by 2030 uh, and then you've got to really step it up because by 2050 we need to be carbon neutral um, yeah, look, unfortunately, just I suppose I should have said, uh, opened. I mean, definitely the challenge that has been posed by climate change uh, and the increase in temperatures is 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 quite stark. Mm. Uh, I, you know, and farmers, more than anyone else, uh, are, are not are not immune to that, and they know that and recognise that. So I think that's the first thing. Um, but like, you know, when we look, at, but it is important as well that, that we get it right. Um, and, and we have to remember, Michael, a number of years back, I mean, the beef industry in Ireland was closed on false, uh, on, on false assumptions and, 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 and incorrect uh, data. Uh, so, so we need to make sure that, that everything we do here is correct. But I think we need to give farmers every chance of protecting their own income. Uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's something that we have to do here. Hmm. Um, uh, and and how, how do you know, you, we have to recognise as well, Michael, you know... How do you do that? Do you increase the cut in uh, emissions in transport? Uh, no. Do you no. increase the cut uh, in emissions in electricity? I think for starters, we need to look, we need to look, I think we need to move back, we need to step back from that as well, but first, Michael, and well, recognise... Well, we have to cut emissions overall by 51%. Well, that's a target that's been set by the government, yeah. Well, it's in legislation, isn't it? So it has yeah, to be it done. Yeah, it so, is in so, so, yeah. so there's no option. And, and, so and the, time scale, the time scales is tight. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one factor we need to recognise here. But if, if farmers is, don't do is, it, somebody else is going to have to board. do it. Sorry, Michael. If farmers don't do it, somebody else is going to have to do it instead of. Uh, well, well, no, see, that's that's the issue we'd have with the narrative. Like that's that's why with the finger of po- finger has been pointed at farmers, um, and, and I mean that's that's the issue we'd have had with the way the Ryan has approached this, especially in the last couple of weeks. Well, uh, the, the, you know, the reason for that farmers, is that the, the farmers for this. But well, the reason for that is that the highest uh, uh, emissions are from agriculture. Thirty-seven percent of all yeah. uh, emissions are from agriculture. So that's yeah. where the biggest cut is needed. And, and, and look, uh, yeah, but I think the first thing we need to look at here, Michael, we need to look here at the number of things, right? Mm. I mean, I've said about the sectoral targets, right? Mm. I mean, so, so clearly farmers need to be allowed to use land use as part of, of, of reaching that. Uh, I mean, we hear Eamon Ryan is, is actually saying that on one hand, but on the other hand, I mean, that's not the reality on the ground. And, and the other point as well, we hear, we hear a lot of talk uh, about solar panels. Now, here's the problem, right? Mm. If if we cover every shed in the country with solar panels, mm, mm. Uh, it still can't be used by farmers to offset their own emissions. And that's a problem. No, because there's because cuts... Because that's, that's, that's across energy, yeah. Because there's cuts expected in electricity. I, I mean, I, I said to you no, that... No. I, I said to you the biggest offenders are, are, are in... Are the, the, the biggest offender is agriculture because it accounts for 37% of all, well, I, all I emissions. Like the, so, I don't so, like, so, like so, the so, offender now, Mike. So, well, the planet... Uh, would consider yeah, it to be an offence. It's an, offe- it's an offence against the planet. So the biggest offender is agriculture uh, because 37% of emissions are from agriculture. Uh, and as I said, you, you'd expect the biggest cuts to be in agriculture, but they're not. Uh, it's between 22 and 30%. But you compare that to 50% in transport or 81% in electricity, 41% in enterprise, 41% in building, uh, and up to 51% in the public sector. Uh, so really, it's... Um, a free ride in some respects for agriculture, is it not? Uh, look, it's, it's not a free ride, right? Now, I mean, we would, we would make the point, Michael, 
just firstly that I mean when we look it is also we have to look at the planet as a whole right and I think this point has been made has been made quite a bit I mean there's no point in us reducing beef production here in Ireland uh, and it's been ratcheted up in Brazil where you're cutting away the rainforest and we're importing it from, from Brazil or into Europe that, that, that doesn't make sense so the idea of carbon leakage hasn't been factored in here and it is one, the emissions are part of a global emissions. It's not just Ireland, right? Mm. Uh, so I think we, we do need to recognise that. I think we need to also recognise the science, right? Um, and I think when we start looking at the science, we need to, to establish, firstly, like there was a report there, we, we are getting, we are getting, we're hearing one side. We, we, we've seen that there was a report being published by the EU Commission uh, titled Grazing for Carbon. Uh, and it effectively says that extensively grazed farming systems, as practiced especially by our suckler and sheep farmers in Ireland and, and other sectors indeed, um, is, is actually helping sequester carbon. But again, but, but, but we need to be able to bring in the, the land use to, to actually to, to, to ascertain that and to be able to be able to be able to realise that. Um, the other factor then as well is, is the IPCC, this is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and how they assess the data. Now we have we've seen that there is also uh, life cycle approach that is done and we have seen where Chagas have done an assessment on both the life cycle approach and the IPCC modelling mm. and they have said that the life cycle approach definitely f- the IPCC modelling favours right, um, the more, more intensive sectors especially as practised in, in many parts of Europe and all that whereas the LCA model the one that we're not using and the one that we would like to see being considered here actually favours grass based systems and, and I think we, we do need to look at all of this before we run down the road of effectively closing down large parts of agriculture. Okay. And I do think, Michael, yeah, we need that to... Is, that, 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 that is the argument. Uh, I suppose the counter-argument is if we have time to do it. Uh, ju- yeah, ju- ju- just just, ju- well, just yeah. to conclude, if I could, Vincent, because we're running sure. over time, um, uh, there's obviously disagreement. Sure, sure. Uh, the Irish Times is reporting today that they're hoping uh, to reach a compromise in around 24-25%. But whether it's 22 or 24 or 25 or 30%, uh, would you hope that this is dealt with today uh, before the cabinet breaks up for the summer break, or uh, would you be happier uh, it dragging on over the summer months? Well, I think we have to get it right. So I think speed. I think accuracy is more important than speed. Um, and I do think we need to recognise. And I know you mentioned the other sectors, and there is technologies coming into agriculture that'll definitely help the situation. The problem is the timeframes are off tight. I mean, they are looking quite a bit. There's, there's massive work being done on seaweed as regards uh, the ability to reduce methane emissions. Um, so there's, very, there's a lot of promise on that in particular, but, but we need a bit more time on that. And I think what's, what's catching us here is the time uh, as, much as, as much as the actual targets. Um, so, uh, I mean, we're expecting to do a lot of this by 2025 and obviously more by, by 2030. I think some of the targets by 2030 can be delivered, but we, we, we need to make sure that we have, if, we have, if the technologies can come on board to, to do that. Um, but I just want to make one last point here, Michael, on this, if I may. Very, very I mean, briefly. I, I, very briefly. I, I guess, you know, we all get the challenge, right? But for normal people, this is a lifestyle choice. For farmers, this is our livelihood. And I think people need to understand that. And farmers have invested heavily um, in that. They have loans to service. And if you, cut, if you cut off their income source, how do they service those loans? And I think, you know, a lot of people, I know we want to, we want to save the planet. Of course we do. But it's one planet. And I think but, but we, can't, we can't just throw the agriculture sector and not just the agriculture sector, the wider rural economy. Uh, because this, this could devastate, like we're looking okay. at potentially 5,000 to 6,000 jobs across rural Ireland. Um, okay. We've been lost here. 
at thirty percent. So, so that's the KPMG report. Okay. So that's that's a problem as well, and we have to keep that in mind. Vincent, I have to leave there. Thank you, Indeed, for joining us on the program. Thanks very much, Vincent Mike. Roddy is the national president of the Irish Natura and Hill Farmers Association, the INHFA. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the latest uh, report uh, from uh, the Child Law Project is uh, being published uh, today and it's reporting on some 58 cases where the state has brought legal action to take children into or keep them in care. Let's speak uh, to Dr Maria Corbett, who's uh, the CEO of uh, the Child Law Project. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Maria. They're all very disturbing cases, no doubt, uh, but you're are highlighting the lack of care placements in this country in your report this time round. Yeah, great. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, we, we, we the project follows cases uh, week on week in the courts, and what we're seeing is a trend whereby we take a child into care, the state has taken the child into care, but then there isn't a place for the child. So we're starting to see um, situations whereby instead of going into foster care or residential care, the Child and Family Agency, TUSLA, has no option but to create kind of an ad hoc emergency placement whereby the child is placed in a hotel or, in one case, in holiday accommodation, and then they would have support staff, you know, caring for the child. Yeah. But that is unusual. When, you know, while uh, there may, you know, at times be an emergency one night or a few mm-hmm. days, sort of an ad hoc arrangement, this, we're seeing that this is going on for months and that the court has been told a placement, another placement in a, in a, you know, in a more regular approved setting will take months, six months down the line, three months down the line. So yeah. we're really very concerned about that as a trend that we're seeing. Yeah, and uh, that obviously a, a very difficult case. Uh, the teenager was taken into care. Uh, then placed into a a residential unit, uh, got involved in criminal activity, went to Oberstown, uh, now is in a holiday cottage. Uh, I heard you saying in the bulletins uh, that's costing €15,000 a a week. Uh, It's an incredible amount of money, and judges aren't often shocked, uh, but the judge in this case, I I see in your briefing notes, said it was beyond belief because it's it's costing the state €780,000 a year. Yeah. That's an understatement yeah. to say it's beyond belief. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you can feel the frustration in the courts at the moment. I mean, nobody, all of the professionals, the children, the parents, nobody is happy with the situation. And I think sometimes it's starting to boil over, you know, that that this is, it's, it's not even the amount of money, it's that we're not using the money well. You know, this is a very expensive placement for a placement that's an ad hoc placement you know it it has been brought together as an emergency response but in in these situations the child is one option is children go to foster care with families another option is they go to residential care and normally that's a small group home setting so the child can go to school from there link with the local community get to know the staff you know so it's Mm. it's mirroring a home but what's happening in these cases ad hoc cases is actually it's a designated placement centre room uh, you know hotel room or or Mm. accommodation where you have just one child so they're isolated they don't have that connection to school or community and it's not stable so they don't know how long they'll be there and then they've got staff coming in and out and they're just there isn't a sense of yeah. enough stability for them to... And they need that support around them, the staff around exactly. them, and that's yeah. the cost of, of this. Uh, so where should a child like that be, ideally? Well, 
well, what we need is we need a system of different residential placements that would have good wraparound support. I mean, what, what's, what we can see is there is a trend whereby you have children coming into care, some of them quite young, some of them primary school age children, but often they, it'll be more teenage, teenage boys, whereby they, their, their needs are very high, the complex needs, so that could be mental health needs, disability, behavioural issues, so being aggressive, uh, being disruptive, um, uh, you know, some of them will be go, staying out all night, those kind of issues. And they, they need the, the stability of a residential mm. placement that has the right trained staff in place. Ten of um, uh, the cases uh, in front of uh, the courts, if, uh, if I could move on, Maria, because uh, we're yeah. running out of time, uh, had to deal with children who had been separated uh, coming into this country and often from war-torn countries like Ukraine. Uh, and there is concern uh, about a girl uh, who may have uh, been brought here for trafficking purposes. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what, what happened was that the child presented uh, with a man at, at the airport in, at the Ukrainian Welcoming Centre, and they were they were interviewed by a social worker who who realised that that the child's story was changing about who the man was. Was he your uncle? Was he your cousin? And it transpired that actually he wasn't a relative and that the child wasn't with her parents. And there was a concern that she had been groomed by this man back in the Ukraine and that he had they had come to Ireland together. But there was a sense there that that really was a case of child trafficking. And she got taken into the care system in an emergency intervention, which is, you know, a high threshold to do that. And the man was interviewed by the guards. Uh, he wasn't charged. We were not sure where he is now. But there was certainly a concern there for the child. And what, what, what is often the case with these children that she uh, herself, there's a concern that she may have an intellectual disability, so is vulnerable. Um, and there was really a, a very important intervention by Tusla here to, uh, to step in and take her into care and ensure that, we, that she can be protected. OK, she's 17, I think, is she? Yeah, they're not sure. She didn't have documents. That, that she's saying she's 17, but they said she presents younger. So, again, sometimes that is an issue. They don't quite know the, the age uh, of, 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 the, of the child. OK. Uh, one of uh, the challenges undoubtedly uh, faced uh, with uh, people coming into the country, there were 10 such cases. Uh, can you tell us uh, more about uh, the children who had ended up in this country separated uh, from their parents or a- a- any adult uh, who could act uh, as um, uh, in, yeah. in their best benefit? Yeah, I mean, actually, that's the only Ukrainian case that we have. The others are, are, are more from kind of um, African countries and maybe the, 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 the um, more Asian areas. But one of them that kind of really struck with me was a, a young boy who had been kidnapped in his home country. Um, he had been um, taken into the uh, force to be a child soldier in the local militia and his sibling had died. And when he did escape, he returned to his village to find that it had been burnt down and that everybody was gone. And he had to make his way then as a, as a, to seek refugee, to seek protection and to travel to Ireland. And you can imagine that he's trying to process the loss and the grief and the trauma of what's mm. happened to him. And he's one of, the young, one of the young 10 people that we've taken into state care and are providing with, uh, I must say, a very good service here. Mm. And very, very, they have a very high quality uh, standard of care for those young people. God, incredible. Uh, we have to leave it there, Maria. We're out of time, but thank you indeed uh, for your time and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Dr Maria Corbett, who's uh, the CEO of uh, the Child Law Project. That's our programme. 
programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.